the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to PX46 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Morning Jess. Today we are again joined by Dr Elizabeth Taylor who we first interviewed earlier this year alongside David Nichols as part of the This Must Be The Place podcast. Liz is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Centre for Urban Research. Her interests are in policy focused research across urban planning, housing markets, property rights and locational conflict and her research often makes use of GIS systems. An increasing research focus at the moment for Liz is car parking policy and now moving into liquor licensing his- history. Is that right, Liz? Yes, more yes. or less. Her PhD thesis investigated the role of land use planning in housing affordability problems in Melbourne and focused on the influence of housing interest groups. Her most recent book, Dry Zones, Planning and the Hangovers of Liquor Licensing History, provides a new perspective on place-based alcohol controls that emerged during the anti-alcohol temperance movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Liz is also a co-founder of the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we highly recommend for those who really want access to the best urban podcasts around Australia. Just search Urban Broadcast Collective on SoundCloud for access. Liz will also talk about this further during the podcast. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, Jess. Hi, Peter. And thanks for having me again. Uh, Elizabeth, could you just tell us a little bit about This Must Be The Place and the Urban Broadcast Collective? So This Must Be The Place is the podcast I've been running with David Nichols of the University of Melbourne for about two years. And that's a planning sort of history, much more much more laid-back podcast than yours, but we cover <laughs> less professional. <laughs> Don't start sledging us now. Um, we cover a range of topics with varying degrees of professionalism, but usually planning and, and urban history focused. And that podcast, as with Planning Exchange, is part of a broader collective called the Urban Broadcast Collective, which is different planning urban-focused podcasts around Australia. And the idea is that if you subscribe to Urban Broadcast Collective, then you'll get you know, variety and of uh, contributors and different, um, yeah, you, the podcast reaches a slightly different audience through that. So It's a great resource. Fantastic. We're so mm. pleased to be on it. And, and it's easier than thankless. reading a book if you listen to it. So yeah. student, great for students. It's mm. great. Now, tell us a little about Dry Zones, uh, the planning and the hangovers of liquor licensing history. So this is a book. It is not my latest book, my only book at this point. And I thought you'd done a, a previous book. No? I've done journal articles Journals. and yeah, been just like book books. chapters. I suppose it's a, it seems like a distinction, but maybe that's me being pedantic. So <laughs> it's called Dry Zones, Planning the Hangovers of Liquor Licensing History, and it's a shorter book put out by Palgrave uh, this year. And it's about liquor licensing history, but it's trying to make that connection between the temperance era, which is the anti-alcohol temperance movement of the late 19th, early 20th century, and to make the argument that not only do we still live with the legacies of that, hence the hangovers pun, but we're kind of reenacting some of the same issues. Liz, the interest in matters that occurred in the late 19th century, or leading up to the end of the 19th century in the 1920s, why, what got you in that to that? Well, there's a a range of threads that led me to this, but probably started with 
my interest when I was at the University of Melbourne, I was looking at NIMBYism or not in my backyardism, which is a pejorative term for land use conflict, really. And the more I, I was trying to understand what are the dynamics of the planning system, the legal system, and all the rights now around different things that people don't want near them. And for many of the things I looked at, it, it just kept leading back further and further into the past. And you ended up, or I ended up, as have other researchers, at this critical point, late 19th century, where I guess what's important in this context is it's pre-planning, so there's no formal planning system, there's no formal metropolitan control, but there are a lot of these kind of disparate ways in which increasingly different groups are trying to separate land uses, control land uses. So it's kind of planning before planning, the origins of zoning, and there's all these other things that are converging as well, industrialization, colonialism, where and the residential real estate market, where it's the origins of planning and of course we all know basic planning history but I'm trying to get back into that nitty-gritty of exactly how did you get to this definition of of residential amenity and so on so that's how I ended up back there. Liz you mentioned that your interest in the study came about when you worked when you were researching a dispute about a 2012 McDonald's restaurant. That's right in Tacoma. And that was the local residents trying to stop something in their area, yeah. So it was one of several land use disputes that I looked at and the Tacoma McDonald's was, um, well, a McDonald's, obviously, a fast food restaurant, although as it turns out how you define a convenience restaurant, it's critical. And it wanted to establish in an area called Tacoma where the people that live there saw themselves not as a suburb but as a village and there was this fierce uh, planning, uh, so it was political debate, there was a... Um, occupation at one stage but also went through VCAT and the planning system and what I noticed and what intrigued me was that first of all the locals in Tacoma often really evoked this idea of direct democracy so they used signs like nine out of ten they did their own survey nine out of ten people didn't want it a thousand people objected to the to the McDonald's so they felt a natural sort of um, interpretation of the law or policy that that should translate to them being able to stop the McDonald's but of course in our planning system, that is not the case. We don't have a direct veto system on a McDonald's. And also, some of the, one of the issues that they raised was um, common to a lot of fast food restaurant disputes, but the idea of social impact, that there would be disorder associated with this restaurant. But in the uh, interpretation in VCAT, they pointed out, well, there's no, there can't be any social impacts. There's no alcohol, there's no gambling, and they may have mentioned prostitution. I can't remember, but I was kind of like, thinking, well, on face value, that's, yeah, common sense. But then I thought, well, where did this distinction come from? Why is it so self-evident that if you don't have alcohol or gambling or prostitution that there's no social impact? And and that meant going back. So I'm really interested in kind of getting to the point where something is made up, a definition is made up. So in that case, I went back to the, the arrival of fast food franchises in Australia and how they define themselves and how important that within the... Um, zoning classifications and how critical that was to how the disputes played out but also went back to what's this distinction between uh, residential zoning and disorderly land uses in the case of Tacoma Tacoma was a, um, a township so they couldn't assert the same rights as other areas such as Knoxfield nearby where they could say yep there's a residential area so that the McDonald's can't go there where did that come from? And also, where did this idea that people have to direct to say in what happens in their area come from? And that ended up in this liquor licensing world. 
So many readers won't know about the temperance movement. Can you give a little bit of a background on that and what was their motivation? They had a mix of motivations, but they were united around framing alcohol as as the biggest challenge in society. They were, broadly speaking, anti-alcohol. The first um, outset of temperance was, um, the meaning of the word was drinking less, and it usually meant drinking less spirits because people drank beer and wine all the time. And so there was, in 1830s, roughly more of a push to like maybe you shouldn't be drunk all the time and that was quite <laughs> quite revolutionary but that escalated over time to be um, social orders around uh, what they called total abstinence so that's t to- capital t capital a t totaler and they had societies that they set up where was uh, promoting the virtues of not drinking at all and they had involvement from a range of groups. They tried to set up an alternative social order. So they had institutions that we all take for granted now were often created by uh, the temperance movement. For example, free libraries, public drinking fountains, a lot of the early housing estates, that sort of thing, were pushed by temperance uh, proponents. They involved uh, the Methodist church, for example, other kinds of church like Quakers, um, also a big part of it was women's groups, Women's Christian Temperance Union, who pushed for uh, votes for women and against alcohol from a point of view of kind of a, a, a 19th century framing of women's rights. It was really about domestic violence. But there's, as my book talks about, there's this other curious element to it where the other push from temperance was uh, liberals in the sense of um, classical liberal people that had an idea about rights and property rights and what you should be able to have a right to say in and they became this kind of unlikely alliance it was hugely influenced in Australia and a range of other countries and um, perhaps most famously in the US it culminated in total prohibition failed but it was enormously politically influential in other countries as well. Liz they um, they probably saw themselves as progressives that's one of my least favorite words at the moment I'm very suspicious of the word progressive to where, I guess. Well, it normally means you're bridge. telling someone else how they should live. And that's why I'm worried about progressive. But Pete's suspicious about a lot of things. <clears> no, 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 no. I'm just <laughs> getting grumpy. But um, <laughs> they're progressives, so they saw themselves as being progressive. They Others, wouldn't have used the word, though. I'd like to, to pedantically point out they didn't say progressive. They certainly had a vision of the future, but it wasn't progressive. I take your point, though. Okay. Okay. Shut so, down. <laughs> slap down. Um, but, but others, so they saw themselves as progressives. I'll st- yeah. stay with this. Others called them wowsers. Yep, so there was a real... Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and that's part of, like, the way that the way that the temperance era is remembered is also part of my interest in it, is to um, we have still inherited the word wowser, which means, like, a uh, someone who's messing in your business, basically, and shutting... A uh, fun police is another one. Um, so it's remembered in simple terms, and um, you go back and unpack what did they stand for. It actually create, uh, reveals all these contradictions and strange uh, kind of inherent um, tensions, I guess, in any liberal democracy. So they had parts of the temperance movement were totally about trying to create a alcohol-free utopia. So they came from... Uh, heavily religious, although I'd like to point out that everyone was religious back then, but they had uh, certainly had some Puritan aspects where it was um, uh, against the drink evil, the drink traffic, and they're trying to eradicate it and and recreate everyone's lives without alcohol. But they also had parts of it that were really working class, um, utopian points of view about people's rights. 
to uh, live without uh, alcohol. And also, which is the part that I'm trying to uh, re-examine in the book a bit more because it tends to get overshadowed, a big part of how the temperance movement propelled was, wasn't about trying to um, change other people's lives. It was actually asserting your own right to live how you live, which was quite novel at the time. So the idea of rights was a big part of um, the local option part, which, which I focus on, but it's that you have a right to um, decide whether you have drink alcohol and whether people around you, and you know we have the right to decide our own neighbourhood drinks. And that seems to, that actually came into alliance with these liberal thinkers. So the people that intensely individualistic were actually pushing something that had big ramifications for society as a whole. And there were no easy answers then or now. And so, but certainly the way the arguments played out in public was, um, yeah, fun police versus um, the, drink, the drink traffic. It was played out in binary terms, but there were always these, these sort of elements that were on both sides. And you discuss in the book uh, the utopian city of Bourneville being um, one of the temperance movements. Is that correct? Yep, yeah, it's dry. It's still dry. Still dry. Yeah. Right. So the uh, Roundtrees who created Bourneville, um, the Quakers, and in part of the temperance movement, and uh, like a lot of people involved in temperance, they were social reformers, perhaps another suspicious word. <laughs> um, they uh, they created these institutions, financial institutions as well, and yeah, housing and. They, we have several in Australia that were dry communities by various mechanisms and the dryness, dry meaning you can't sell alcohol. Some of them go to the extreme that you can't drink alcohol, but it's usually about not manufacturing or selling alcohol. It's written into the property title that you can't do it. And that's just part of, um, first of all, it's about the idea of alcohol being polluting, but it was equally about something people, when they bought their own property, their own residential home, they were buying the idea that they were safe from those kinds of like things. Like covenants. I mean, Ocean yeah. Grove's got those covenants still, I think. Yes, as in Bourneville. It's the same mechanism written onto the property title covenant mm. saying, you know, thou shalt now X, Y, Z. And it's not um, coming from the government. It's a private property right saying it, in this area, people that live here, buy here, won't do this and they agree to. So it's coming through that. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Liz, you say in your book, the largest story I tell from this is how the temperance movement and the experience and beliefs that fueled it influenced public policies and left legacies that continue to shape cities today. Can you talk talk to this? Yeah, I was really struck by how much um, un, under-acknowledged influence at the local level that the temperance movement had, and that's what I said about researching. So... There's things about the temperance movement that are famous. I mentioned prohibition. In Australia, we also had the six o'clock swill. That was a famous disaster. That's where you had to stop drinking at six o'clock. But the other thing that that I uh, that they were involved in that I think hasn't been examined so much is that they started at the local level. 
they started with this idea that a local area has the right to decide whether and how many hotels there are in that area. And this is part of that groundswell of zoning, so zoning before zoning. The, the various local mechanisms that came together to redefine what can go where and what rights you have and that sort of thing. And the specific mechanism I looked at was what's called local option. The covenants were also important, but... Can you just tease out what local option and tell our listeners what local option means? Sure, because uh, most people wouldn't know because it's a forgotten term. But the um, for many people in temperance, their objective was to get to national prohibition, so no prohibition. Some people, their objective was to get to the point where local areas got to decide how much alcohol they had in their... their neighborhood and the two came together around this mechanism it was either called local option local veto it was also called the permissive bill in the uk and there's various other names for it but they shared originally called maine law named for the u.s state of maine where it was first implemented but by you know the the actual mechanism varied slightly but the basic idea was that it was a um a law either within the liquor law or separately that saying um that People, being defined as either voters, electors or residents, could have a direct vote on either whether how many, whether to have hotels at all or uh, alcohol sales, how many to have and, and also to close down hotels. And this was a direct democratic mechanism and that was really what they pushed as being its merits. It was the vote of the people in the area and you'd have these local option polls and we had them in Victoria, incredibly common through US states. That's what culminated in total prohibition was actually all these different dry areas which were created by local option coming, marching towards total prohibition and different names elsewhere. But local option, you would vote on whether to open a hotel, whether to close a hotel, how many hotels to have. And throughout the late 1880s, moving forward through those critical decades, in Victoria, Thousands of hotels were closed. Well, actually, that came later. Many hotels were closed through these polls, where if you got three-fifths majority of electors or residents um, getting over the line, then you would deprive licences. And this had this huge effect on, first of all, how many pubs there were, the, the hotel industry, because we're gradually seeing the closure, closure of thousands of them. Also, just the kind of hurdles you had to get to to get a license that started to become much more closed down system through this direct democratic control. And so it's not central. There's always been controls on alcohol. There's always been controls on pubs or whatever you call them. But traditionally, it's been central and it's been, you know, or magistrate, like a legal decision. And this push to local option was about changing that control to being democratic and local and it had this, um, we can still see it today in the, in the sense that you see all the old hotel facades, that was the outcome of, of local option. But I argue that we also see it in, in our zoning system. Did it lead to better social conditions, do you think? No. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> it, but, you, but you talk about, you know, many, I think you said, not, yeah. not hundreds, but many mm-hmm. um, hotels being de-licensed. Did yes. that have, what kind of impact did that have on the local communities? Well, I guess one point to make is that nobody ever systematically assessed the effect. Mm. There was a lot of kind of quasi-medicalised science around it, but it was more about doing it and then 
uh, proclaiming victory. Insofar, it is a good question. I was too blunt in my answer. <laughs> it's just that there's never the intended effect. So the mm. idea of what it would mean wasn't rea the reality. So I like to think in the long term. So we used to have the the concentration of hotels that we had in Victoria was would be astonishing to people even today. Mm -hmm. um, that's where they came up with this idea of the uh, statutory number. So they thought there's a reasonable number of hotels you could have per person. And that number was just like one for every 50 people. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that seems reasonable. No, we'd be nowhere near that even now. So there was the effect that just that level of concentration was reduced and perhaps, you know, it's hard to imagine what what it was like living in those kind of conditions but it was also bound up with all these other changes as well um so the concentration of hotels was often a product of uh, the demographics so particularly in old goldfields areas it was a very male very young population and that's why they had so many hotels and when they're closed whether that change has anything to do with it anyway that's the kind of model mm. that you get end up with it's also true however that they unintentionally changed all these other things, including getting votes for women. That was, they put that as like, we need to get votes for women so that we can close the hotels. I mean, that was a big part of why New Zealand introduced suffrage so early because they had such a strong local option movement. So I would argue that's a positive change that they didn't plan. Yeah. And also they kept pushing, for example, instead of having hotels, they would build coffee palaces, which is where the idea was that you wouldn't drink anymore because you drink coffee, but then people like coffee and drinking. So <laughs> in Melbourne now we have coffee and bars. So there's this irony that things definitely change. They change for the better, largely in that kind of reform way rather than that um, idea that alcohol was the problem. It was perhaps all the other things they created that made the difference, not the demise of alcohol. So there's lots of local... Uh current conditions where this sort of thing also happens where people you know restrict g gaming mm -hmm. late night venues yeah. music venues and lots of planning schemes have policies prohibit not, not discouraging it's, certain it's, things it's embedded through our whole and not just victoria just the whole system of zoning is comes from this idea that there are things that belong somewhere and people have certain rights to say where they belong or don't belong so this was a novel idea in times of, of local option and I think that we have inherited that logic and there's a tendency sort of to think that those categorizations have an inherent logic to them or science to them and a lot of them come back to sort of early 20th century values as well. Even as much as we reform, my argument is that we have inherited these ideas from, from moral um, arguments of the past and that's not me saying that they're they're wrong or anything this is we're still living the reason you see these kinds of um disputes around live music for example or gaming is that we still have the same system behind everything and we also re-encounter the same problems and that's to me speaks to the question that whereas we can look back at wowsers and say oh that was stupid they were like you know tilting at windmills kind of thing for every temperance era thing that we take away now, so the covenants, for example, and there's a push to scale back dry zones or gaming machines, this is another a good example there, there's a push back that people, um, some people, some areas feel that they have a right to not have these or that there's a social impact. And it's not so easy to liberalise land use because there's all these contradictions in rights. And 
some great examples that uh, still keep coming up now. The gaming machines thing, to me, seems to have a direct parallel to local option. Of course, gaming machines were illegal in Victoria until 1992, but in the way that they've been reintroduced in Castlemaine even, you see that almost like a direct reenactment of local option where the um, residents there was a very fierce push against the machines and also using arguments like this there's a social impact. We have a right to decide what happens here. There's too many of them in this one place. And that's coming back into um, our planning system, but also other legislation. Um, in the gaming legislation, you have that uh, recognition that um, a certain number of objections is an indicator of social impact. And we have even in the planning system, as a direct result of the Tacoma case and some others, the recognising objectors bill, which is moving back towards this idea of direct democracy direct local democracy. By direct democracy, I don't mean the broad idea of um, a political system. It's the um, how you, who gets to decide. And that well, well, at least that's a, that's a question we're going to raise, and that yeah. is the tension between local control mm-hmm. and, what, and what is a reasonable outcome. So there, there might be some locals who aren't adverse to these proposals, mm-hmm. and also there's a need for broader catchments. It's almost like the tyranny of the local mob. That's what I'm worried about. Well, that's the, um, the tension that was... Um, recognised around local option and it really splintered, the word I heard was splintered the Liberal Party of the time in, in the UK was that they couldn't resolve this tension. Is So in some ways we have a positive idea of direct, so you know we the majority of people voted for Daniel Andrews for example that's, and then we in some ways we'll say that's good because that's the vote of the people and yet when you come down to certain issues, then there's an element to which it's tyranny as well, so tyranny of the majority. And they couldn't, in in this historical period, couldn't reconcile which it was. Was it the right of the local people exerting? Is it an extension of individual rights to be able to decide collectively what happens in your area? Or is it um, an infringement on the rights of the people that aren't in the majority? And that still hasn't been resolved around any zoning questions, really. And there's more of a move back now towards um, empower, empowering and localism, certainly in the UK and other, other contexts, even in the, in the US. Um, of course, that never demised there, but um, the, there's the gaming ones, the McDonald's one that played out around that. And it's, a lot of it's about who gets, who has to even ask permission, I suppose. And that, so we have um, a zoning system where you, you apply for a permit to do something. You don't have to apply for a permit to build a single detached house. You know, we have, you have to apply for a permit to do something that requires permission. And that's where these um, debates come up. And I, so there's just always the promise and the perils of direct democratic very much rights. So. The promise is that it'll, it will be an extension of people's individual rights. It will allow for different areas to have different outcomes and it will reflect the, and it's uh, the will of the people that live there it's more flexible that's what direct veto is um and the peril is that you can't do if you're in a minority group you can't do anything and that was it plays out along class lines along racial lines and gender lines as well and still living it out now and i think the u.s is often the book's really about australia but the u.s i think is uh, like plays this out on a grand scale so national prohibition failed but really People can sometimes remember that as thinking, well, that meant that trying to control alcohol was a failure. But what the demise of national prohibition in the US actually meant was that they 
it just reverted back to local control. So there's still, there are many US states that were completely dry into the 1960s and there's still about 400 localities there that are, they because they have this idea of home rule and um, self-rule and localism, which speaks to that one version of what rights are. But on the other hand, that's the exact same mechanism that led to Jim Crow and, and those kinds of uh, exclusionary local controls. You utilised a lot of archival research as part of your book. What have been the, some of the advances in this field in recent years? Well, a big part of it is the digitisation. So it's getting easier and easier to access things from from the past, archival things. So some of this work, I actually was based at the Public Records Office of Victoria and have that fun thing where you're touching, I don't know about you, but I like to touch old books. So it's like, there's that and weird old leathery things. Um, but that's made possible by the fact that they have such a high quality um, system of archiving where you can access records and it's got good metadata and so on. And increasingly these records are being digitized. So it doesn't always mean you can access it then not necessarily searchable, but the object itself can increasingly be found. And that's opening up. Um, it's just becoming much, I wouldn't say easier, but it's certainly more possible to access a large number of records and put them together. For example, in I mapped a lot of the uh, results here, getting combining um, current GIS systems or database systems even with historical records that they wouldn't have had access to then. So it's a, a new perspective. Uh, Liz, the, your book Dry Zone seems to be in the realm of pure research um, as compared to applied research. What's the value of this type of pure research, do you think? I, I was interested in that question because I think we're on a spectrum. As far as the university is concerned, I'm right over near the applied end. Yes. So this, far, this, is, this would be considered quite applied because it's intrinsically about policy. Where does policy come from? Who creates it and how does it live on and what does that say about how you can understand change over the long term, et cetera? So I see it as somewhat applied, but I take your point. You wouldn't read this book and go, right, I'm going to go out and get rid of the dry zones or um, shut down, you know, a McDonald's or something like that. There's no straightforward answer. The value of it it's, me, it's reaching deep back into history to consider where the origins of some of the issues we've got now. Yeah, because we're so. still dealing with them. And I see that as part of the value that these disputes are coming back perhaps even with more force as that memory recedes and having an understanding of where certain assumptions, norms, regulations came from, somebody makes them up at one point, is to me is a way of understanding how you might potentially move through it or at least understand why it's happening and maybe not devote so much energy to trying to uh, change something. And Liz, who's going to enjoy this book, do you think? Who's well, it for? Well, that's, it's an element for people that maybe have worked in planning and found these um, these kinds of disputes fascinating. But a large part of the audience would just be um, maybe people that are enthusiasts about pubs as well. There's a lot of curiosity stuff in there. So um, we wouldn't want to oversell the general interest, but it's <laughs> a lot of like weird anachronistic rules in I, there. I really like how each chapter is named after a pub in Harcourt, a former pub in Harcourt. And you also mentioned one of your forebearers. Yeah, there's a few, a bit of that. I tried to draw on my own family history. They were teetotalers. So I grew up with, um, you know, non-alcoholic drinks and looking at where their views came from and the area they came from, which be, which shut down all their hotels, Harcourt near Castlemaine, because of the influence of the Rechabites and other temperance groups. And that's a way, I'm trying to say there that it's, it's about 
the legal system, the planning system, and the inheritances we have, but that's equally it's analogous to how we inherit other values from. And you know, it's not in terms of generations. The temperance movement wasn't that long ago. It's only a few, and the benefit of looking at what you've inherited, you know, better or worse, is to try and I guess confront yourself. What are you doing now? And trying to get a sense of the passage of time, because a lot of planning decisions are. Um, have this idea that you're making a permanent change and really it's part of a long spectrum of change in the city and within which policies and uh, assumptions and rights behind them play a role and are not making a promise that you could read this book and know how to fix anything but you'll certainly get a different perspective on what's happening around live music disputes for example what's the morass of legality you've got a wonderful writing style I've got to say this Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's very accessible readers, yeah, listeners, definitely. so I, I would urge. What do you think, Jess? Agree. As you were saying earlier, Pete, it's like you're just talking to us in our ears. It's really, it's really nice. <laughs> Maybe because we're so familiar hearing you Probably. on your podcast. Right. So, but no, so just winding up now, what's, what's shaping up for your next research project? Um, actually, one of the um, projects that's come on is also one of these historically informed ones. I'm part of a research team with David Nichols looking at the history of decentralisation efforts in Australia and so what's worked and where did these ideas come from and efforts at new towns etc and again trying to make that link it's not explicitly applied research but it's trying to say well how does that history play into the debates now and and what we think is possible and so on so that's one project I'm still really interested in all this kind of pre-planning stuff and historically informed stuff but Equally using that to look at issues around transport provision. So, uh, yeah, I have a range of projects. So this liquor one, the liquor licensing one, is really a passion project of mine that I don't think it would e it wasn't wasn't easily going to fit in a in a journal. So I thought it's it's going to come out of this. And I have several other these passion projects as well as the transport housing kind of work that I focus on. Well, you've got a lot on your plate with all of that, plus your your podcast as well. Um, what surprised you about your podcast that's been going now for two years three years, three now, years? i think yeah it surprised me in a good way um how many people seem to regularly listen to it so i mean it's right on a knife edge for a long time of like doing things is, is there a point if nobody's listening and i know that so i know that a few people are regularly listening and like with yours you know there tend to be local people and then you'll sometimes meet people that you only know a little bit and they're like, yeah, I heard your podcast on Japan or something. It's like, <laughs> that's great. Um, and it surprised me how popular podcasts are getting as well, but also how many people don't know what a podcast is. So it, it's a mechanism. One of the ways I try to work on translating research into a broader audience and it's it's always hard. And I think the benefit of podcasts is that, and, is that you keep doing it and getting maybe hopefully maybe not incrementally worse anyway. And Liz, how do you unwind? You're in a band? Yes, I play music. Um, a fellow violinist. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Although yours is in your parents' house. Yeah, mine's, mine's gathering a lot of dust. <laughs> yeah. mine, mine sees a bit more work. Um, it's, it's just a hobby thing. I play in a, a kind of folk band, um, play the violin, also mandolin and piano. A lot of our songs are very geographical as well, so there's not a very sharp... Is that the between Orb Weavers? Words. Yes, very similar. Ah. Yeah, love the Orb Weavers. So they, Orb Weavers are a band that write inspired by 
directly about local history and ours is similar. Like we have songs about particular suburbs and towns. We have a song about Wangaratta and... Where do you play? Hmm. Uh, I mean, mainly bars in the north, but we do a few really small festivals. We're playing at the Bendigo Autumn Festival next year and we play, for example, just, yeah, High Street, Northcote. So we're not a... Well, what's the <laughs> name of the like band, Liz? Taylor Project. Is the, the Taylor band. Project. Yes. Okay. And we have many geographical songs, as I mentioned. You can probably find us by searching for one of those. We have a song, I'm from Ballarat, and we have a song, Ballarat on a Good Day. And the exciting thing there was that recently somebody used it in an ad that was then, not an ad, like a little, they made a mural and used our music in the background. And then it was shared on like the Visit Ballarat website, which is fabulous partly because the, the song's also a bit of a backhander. <laughs> do you love, so it's like, I love you Ballarat, but I'm leaving anyway. I don't like it. So I do do that. I also really enjoy with summer uh, visiting swimming pools. So it's somewhere between research and just um, interested in it. I'm interested in the demise of um, public swimming pools in Victoria. So on as the weather warms up increasingly, I go out and try and visit as many of these pools as I can as they <laughs> um, tend to close. Very good. And Pete, what's caught your attention since our last interview? Well, I, I went to a, a Bayside Beach, which I really do, and uh, when it warmed up the other last weekend. And what I thought is that we need to get much greater densities near public resources, public parks. Um, when it's such the health benefits for people to be next to green spaces, being be next to coastal areas, if it's done properly. Um, walking in a green area is better than taking an antidepressant pill for most people. So, and we've got this sort of density problems where sort of density drivers where we say it has to be near public transport. With the change in transport systems, the public transport will come to those places. So I just think we need to really beef up around public parks, uh, green spaces and coastal. It's amazing when you go along this coastal stretch, the low density housing adjacent to it. I was wondering if you're in Ocean Grove, which was a temperance Methodist coffee palace resort, and that's why it still has that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm near, I've got a place near Ocean Grove yes. down at Queenscliff, but um, yes. And uh, now, Jess, what's caught your attention since our last podcast? I've been listening to a great podcast called Trace by ABC Listen. It's on the ABC Listen app. I don't know if you've listened to that one, have you, Liz? I have, yeah. yeah. This is one of these many interesting. Um, ones that are crossing a line because they're so popular that they're actually seeing legal that yes. changes. So the judicial inquiry was reopened for that yeah. one. Yeah, very interesting. So I think it's a six-part series. Highly recommend. It's a murder, murder um, case and all the de- details of that. So it's very interesting. And for those who are over that, The Onion's done a great counter one on that, taking the mickey out of those sort of true crime things. Well, so. Who has? Sorry, The Onion. The Onion. Oh, was that <clears> the one that had the robot... No, it's uh, <laughs> it's the most horrible murder or something like that. <laughs> so. Yeah, it is. It is um, confronting how popular. I mean, I love them, but the popularity of true crime podcasters says something. It's either we're really morbid or there's something wrong with the justice system. I think it, I think as well with some of those ones where it is local and it's quite close to home. I think that's where some of the interest comes from. Speaking of the justice system, the business about the police in Victoria being mm. corrupt and using an informer who was a barrister acting for... That shocked me in terms mm. of trust in public institutions. Yeah, it's very It's just appalling. On that, on that 
sour Happy note. note. <laughs> yes, Liz, thank you so much for this. Our, yeah, thanks, our podcast Liz. cousin from This Must Be The Place. Yeah, thanks it, for enjoying my babbling. All no, no, time. always a great pleasure. And um, Jess, always wonderful to do the podcast with you. Thanks, Pete.